Hey, good morning, folks. Thank you again for being with us this morning. We are filming this on Tuesday, the Tuesday before Sunday, the, the 14th. It's going to be 60 degrees today. By Sunday, we're going to be deep in a snowstorm, at least, at least per Kathy Sabin. So, you know, I pray that, hey, well, welcome to Colorado in the springtime in the Rockies. So um, let me pray us in this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for... Um, the ways that we can gather still as a community, as, as a church family. And Lord, we just pray that you be with us in a powerful way this morning, regardless of the weather outside, that you will be with us. And Lord, your Holy Spirit wraps around us like a warm blanket on a cold night. But I pray that presence over everyone this morning. I pray these things in your Son, Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.
Hey, just a couple of three announcements before we pass it to Pastor Ike. One, two weeks from today, uh, March 28th, Sunday, March 28th, is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. We invite you to be a part of all of the events that happen that week. We've got it on our homepage. Just check out the Holy Week schedule. It starts with Palm Sunday. We've got our three online services, 9, 10, 30, and 7 p.m. But we're also doing a drive-through communion, and also we'll be giving out palms that day. So come be a part of that. That's going to happen on that Sunday from from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. So come squeeze that in on your day. We'd love to see you, love to be there with you, pray for you, and give you our communion and, and the palms. And then that leads us to Monday, Thursday, the day that Jesus gave us the gift of communion. We'll have one service at 7 p.m. that talks about that. Um, we'll also be doing communion that day as well. Um, at home. And then that leads us to, to Good Friday, the day that Jesus went to the cross for us. We'll have an online service at noon and then at 7 p.m. Our chapel, a beautiful chapel, is going to be open also from that time, noon to 7 p.m. We have elders there, but you can come in and pray or be prayed with and prayed over during that time, anytime during noon to 7 p.m. Then we're also doing a, a food drive and household item drive that day. The foods are going to Mount Air Christian Church. The, the household items are going to South High School, the, the immigrants that, that we're supporting there. Uh, there will be, on, on our homepage, underneath the Holy Week schedule, there will be a list of things that they need, both Mount Air and, and um, South High. So come check that out. Come be a part of that. Again, that's noon to 3, the, the food and household item drive. And then finally, that leads all leads to Easter, a Resurrection Sunday. We're going to have our online services at 9 and 10.30 and 7. But we're also going to do an in-person service, weather permitting, um, outside, out back. Come be a part of that. Invite your friends and family to be a part of that. It's going to be a, a great time. We're also going to have some stuff for kids, uh, so, interactive stuff during the service, and then some candy, uh, giveaway candy on the way out. So come be a part of that. I'm going to be passing it to Pastor Ike right now. Good morning. Welcome again to South Suburban Christian Church. Thank you for joining us online. If you're joining us online at uh, our online.church platform, uh, we're very excited that you're here. Hope that you've signed in, getting to know some of the other folks that have uh, signed on as well. If you're listening to us on SoundCloud or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, thank you. If you're watching us on YouTube, I hope that you'll take an opportunity to look at our other videos on this channel. Uh, I just want to send out a, a, just a quick heads up. I'm so grateful for the work that our communications team does and uh, our tech staff. Uh, none of this would be possible without their hours and hours and hours of work. And it's, it's kind of interesting that uh, in just you know, the time it takes uh, me to record a message, I won't say how long that is, um, it, there, there's hours and hours and hours of post-production work that occurs uh, to get it from when I'm actually talking here to the time that you're watching. And we're just grateful for a, the, the team, the volunteers, and everybody who has given so much uh, to make this ministry a possibility. Hey, we're in the midst of this series, uh, Out of the Ashes. And so far we've looked at Adam and Eve. We looked at Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. Uh, last week we looked at that David and Bathsheba story. And today we're going to be looking at a story that isn't as well known and is probably a little bit more, well, PG-13, maybe even R-rated uh, in the Bible. The story of Hosea and Gomer. Uh, Hosea is one of the uh, books of prophecy in your Old Testament. Uh, so, you know, go, go to your Old Testament and keep going toward the end of the Old Testament and you'll eventually run into Hosea. But hey, you're not in church, you're not in a church building, 
So no one can see you. Just look at the table of contents and find the book of Hosea. It's a really, uh, it's, it's a relatively small book, and I would encourage you to take some time to read through it. Uh, you know, it, you know, just that much, about 14 chapters, and uh, I hope that you'll um, read this powerful story about a crazy kind of love that we're going to talk about today. So if you found Hosea, I'm going to begin, I'm just going to read chapter 1. It's not that long, but we're going to be going through some other chapters, but I'll be staying in Hosea today. won't be going back to any other books like we did last week. So uh, beginning in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere, the, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Whew, that's some tough words there, isn't it? By the way, we look, there's not any other translations that help with that word. It is what it is. Picking up at verse 3. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But... I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. <laughs> and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Today uh, is the fourth Sunday in Lent. Uh, we've already talked about Lent as a season of 40 days uh, that goes from Ash Wednesday up uh, through the resurrection of Jesus, commonly called Easter. You've probably heard me say that phrase a few times. I'll talk about that when we get to that particular Sunday. Lent is a time uh, of preparation, it's a time of prayer. It's a time of repentance. It's a time of discovering uh, our need for God's grace. That is the gift God gives us, gives us that we do not deserve. And God's mercy. That is, is that which God does not give us that we do deserve. During the five weeks uh, in this time leading up to Palm Sunday, um, which is the Sunday that we remember Christ entering into Jerusalem uh, on the uh, back of a colt. Uh, we talked a little bit about that last week. Um, we're going to be looking at five instances in Scripture 
of folks who found themselves up to their neck in ashes. Uh, what led to that and how we see God and ultimately what God has done, how God responds, uh, and which I think is most important, uh, as we have seen God's grace and love and mercy through Jesus Christ, have known that through Jesus Christ. I want to share with you three important truths about God's love this morning. There's a lot more than three, but I want to share three of them with you today. First of all, point one, God's love is patient. It never grows cold. <laughs> I remember when I had just uh, uh, begun to serve a small church uh, in a very rural part of Kentucky while I was in seminary as a licensed pastor before I was ordained. I had a couple that came to, uh, to, to the church and they wanted to get married. And this was uh, the very first wedding that I would have ever done. And unfortunately, it turned out to be the wedding that would never occur. Uh, I'll never forget as they walked into uh, the, the, the little office that was there in that, that very old church building, uh, built in 1828. Uh, they sat down and they were so much in love and so excited and, and just so filled with joy and, and, and excitement about what was going to uh, happen and, and what they were about to do. And so we began to talk about marriage. You know, you go through those uh, uh, sessions uh, of preparing for marriage, which I always thought was kind of funny. I, I, of course, I was single then, didn't know anything about marriage. And here I am counseling this young couple about to get married. And they had, uh, in, the, in, the, in the process of that, they had said that they would like to uh, write their own vows. Now, I know that a lot of people do that. Uh, some of our uh, professors at seminary, um, weren't really big on the idea of people writing vows. The wedding vows that we have uh, date back over 1,500 years. Those vows that are said even today uh, have been relatively unchanged for 1,500 years. And, and some of those uh, old preachers teaching at seminary said, hey, there's a reason that words like that are able to stand the test of time. But this was the first wedding, and I was excited, and I didn't want to do anything to jeopardize this because this was my very first wedding. And so I said, well, that's fine. You can write your own vows. I said, we'll, we'll, we'll sit down. We'll, we'll look them over. And, uh, and so we, uh, we did that. And, and you know, the, the, most of the things that they said were not that different. They were said differently, but they were not that different than you would find in a traditional vow until at the very end, the guy said this phrase, and this I vow until my love grows cold. And when he said that, the, his fiancée, she looked at him and she looked at me and she had such love and she said, isn't that so romantic, so, so wonderful? What a metaphor for, for the love and the life that we're about to embark on. Well, <laughs> I was a little bit more skeptical. I said, can you tell me a little bit about what do you mean when you say our love grows cold? At which point she interrupted and said, well, of course, Pastor, until our love grows cold through the coldness of death. And he looked at her with the most perplexed look in the world, and he said, no, no it doesn't. It, it means until I don't love you anymore. I mean, how can I promise that I'll always love you? And I don't want to make a promise that I can't keep. Well, the tone and the atmosphere in the office changed rather quickly and rather suddenly. And they begin to go back and forth, and here I am. I, I don't really know how to handle this kind of conflict yet. 
And so I said to them, I said, well, well, let's stop arguing. Why don't you guys go home, talk about this, and let's meet next week, and uh, we'll continue our planning. Well, as you might imagine, I never heard or saw from that couple ever again. You know, I guess that for a lot of us, we want to be able to make promises that we know that we can keep. We want to be able to think about, um, and yet at the same time, we want to be able to think about that in those important relationships, like marriage, the vows that we're making, the commitments that we're making, are for a lifetime. And yes, 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 we've heard all of those of you who have been seasoned married couples, uh, 30, 40, 50, even 60 years of marriage, and you've said, look, it's not always fun and games, it's not always a bed of roses. And I have to say that if I were looking at lifting up a couple that would be the most wonderful example of marital bliss and joy, Hosea and Gomer would not be the couple that I lift up. And yet at the same time, if I were lifting up a couple that talks about the rawness and the reality of what it means to be committed to one another or committed to relationship, Hosea and Gomer are the perfect couple. Let me quickly just outline the story of Hosea for you, and I hope that you'll go and you'll read the entire book. Uh, you can probably do it in one sitting. Hosea is a prophet of God. He serves the northern kingdom of uh, Israel, and his home base, if you will, is Samaria. You might say that he's just a good country pastor in a small town in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's faithful. He loves his people. He is faithful to God's word. He speaks the truth. He extends God's grace and forgiveness. And yet, at the same time, he is surrounded by rebellion. The people of Israel are refusing to stay true and loyal to the one true God. This is after the nation has split. The temple is down in Jerusalem in the southern nation of Judah. And the kings of Israel don't want their people to go to Judah, for they might they might defect to that southern kingdom. They might not remain loyal to the northern kingdom of Israel. So the kings establish places of worship on the high places or on these mountaintops. And they tell the people, you don't need to go to the temple anymore. You, you go to this, you stay right here in Israel, and this is where you can worship. It's not what the Mosaic law had outlined. And, and on top of that, as other nations have come in and as other nations have stayed and as the people of Israel had remembered the religions of their past and they said, hey, if we can't go to the temple, if we can't go to Jerusalem, if we can't participate in that kind of festivity, then we'll just go back to the old pagan ways that we remembered when we were here in Israel during the Exodus, when we were uh, conquering these people and in some ways assimilating, seeking to assimilate them into the faith of the God of Israel but in too many cases, they assimilated into the pagan faiths. And so they began to worship other gods. And the principal god that they worshiped was a god named Baal and his female counterpart, Asherah. And Baal, the, the, the pagan god Baal, becomes uh, this, this significant rival, if you will, of the one true god, the god of Isaac and uh, Jacob and Joseph, Abraham. Well, when God calls Hosea to, to be a prophet, to be a pastor, if you will, in the midst of this very idolatrous uh, community, it was hard work. And most of Hosea's preaching was not 
calling the people back to true worship. And so God says to Hosea, I want you to marry this woman, and her name is Gomer. And uh, Gomer is, uh, and, and the word there, as it was translated, a woman of whoredom. What it means is it, it's a woman whose, whose own understanding of marriage is not as God had uh, established. It, it, she is a woman who God knows uh, will forget the vows that she's going to make to her husband. And so Gomer and Hosea get married. And, and like so many relationships, the marriage starts out okay, I suppose. I mean, uh, they have a child together, and uh, it's a little boy. And God says, I want you to name this child Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is an, a name that may not mean much to me and to you, but to the original readers of this book, the, the original hearers of the prophet Hosea, they would have completely understood what that meant. You might remember the stories of King uh, Ahab and uh, Jezebel. Everybody knows the name Jezebel. She comes from the Bible. Uh, how they, uh, Hosea, or I'm sorry, Ahab wanted a, a vineyard that was owned uh, by a god named Naboth, and it was in the valley of Jezreel. But the vineyard wouldn't be sold to him, and so Jezebel figures out a way to have the owner of the vineyard put to death, and Ahab claims. Uh, this valley and this vineyard for himself. God sends the prophet Elijah uh, to Ahab and says, you know, you have done this horrible thing and I will demand your life in the very valley that you have taken by murder. Not only are Ahab and Jezebel associated with that horrific murder in order to gain wealth and gain land and gain power, uh, but there's also that great story of when Jezebel tries to have all of the prophets of God put to death. And Elijah calls together a battle between uh, the one true God of the universe and the, God, the pagan non-existent God Baal on Mount Carmel when they, they build the altars. And, and Elijah says, here's how we'll prove which is the true God. Whichever God sends down fire to consume the offering on the altar uh, will be the one true God. Uh, you can go back and you can read more about that in... Uh, First uh, Kings chapter 18. So, so what, what we're seeing here in just this name is that word Jezreel would have brought back all of those memories. It would have brought back all the memories of, of Ahab and Jezebel. It would have reminded the readers of the murder that Ahab and Jezebel had done in order to acquire this vineyard. It would have reminded them of their persecution of the prophets of God. It would have reminded them of Jezebel and uh, Baal's, I'm sorry, uh, Ahab's insistent that the people worship Baal and Asherah rather than Yahweh, Jehovah, the one true God. It, it, it's a name that would have brought to their minds judgment. It would have been a name that would have reminded them that God's judgment is sure, that people reap what they sow. Well, after Jezreel, Gomer begins to step out, if you will, on Hosea. She goes and she finds other lovers. And she conceives and has a child. And uh, God says to Hosea, name this child no mercy, for I will have no mercy on the people. Now, now, now this isn't, when, when, when we say God doesn't give mercy, we're not saying that God punishes. Uh, what no mercy literally means is, is that God simply allows the results of our rebellion to be felt by those of us who rebelled. 
like we have said, and I have said to you multiple times, mercy is, uh, mercy is that God doesn't give us what we do deserve. So when we don't receive mercy, it is as God is allowing the normal, natural results of our rebellion to be felt by us. It's a way of our having to pay the piper, if you will, or to pay the bill, as we talked about last week. So what God is saying is, is if these are the things that you want to do, this is how you want to live your life, this is how you want to treat one another, then I will simply allow the results of your behavior to play out and you'll experience your own payment for your own behavior. He then, uh, uh, she, she then steps out again. By the way, no mercy was a daughter. She then steps out again, and, and this time um, uh, they have a son. She has a son. Again, Hosea is not the father. And they call this child's name, not my people. That is, that the people just simply aren't interested in being the people of God anymore. That the people have no interest in benefiting from the great covenant promises that God had given them. The people didn't want to be tied to the morals and the mores and, and the, the appropriate ways of conduct, the, the way that we should live in deference to one another and in submission to God so that we might intr- uh, uh, realize true joy. And yet, in the midst of all of this, as you looked at those last verses, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1, there's this war that seems to be going on within God, that even though He knows the people don't want anything to do with Him, that the people of Israel just are completely uninterested in God. Now I'm pausing here in these minutes, because does any of this sound familiar? Do we not find ourselves in a culture that is just simply completely uninterested in the God that loves them and the God that wants to heal them? Do we find ourselves, like those early citizens of Israel, overwhelmed by the religions and the the, the issues of importance that come upon us by the culture and we find ourselves distracted and pursuing these false and pagan gods not necessarily statues made of gold or wood, but, but areas that are supposed to give us meaning that don't even exist and aren't real. And you see this, this love story, if you will, the, the, the story between Hosea and Gomer of this wife who has twice now stepped out on her husband and has conceived and born children that are not his and, are, and is expecting him to take care of while she goes and pursues other lovers as well. is an example of how God feels and what God experiences as He looks down on His creation. And yet, point two, God's love is kind. You know, in chapter 2, verse 8, if you keep reading, uh, Hosea is, is uh, reflecting uh, as God talks about and compares the emotions and the instances that Hosea has to deal with to how God is engaging with his people. Apparently, what Gomer's been doing is just 
you know, she, she, she's home with Hosea. She, she uh, goes and buys some clothes using Hosea's money. She, she buys grain and wine and oil. She puts on herself jewelry of gold and, and silver. And then she goes out. While Hosea is out preaching, she goes out and looks for a man that might be interested in her. She's using all the things that Hosea had given her. She's using all of the resources Hosea had provided so that she could go find another fellow. And God says, this is how I feel. Because it's I who give you the corn and the wine and the oil, and you offer it to a pagan idol. It's I who have given you the silver and the gold, and you take it and you make this idol and you tell this silver and gold that I've given you that it is what has given you the blessings of life. You take the stuff that I give you and you use it to worship the other gods that will never be faithful to you. And yet even as Gomer uses the provisions and the possessions of Hosea to lure to herself other lovers, there's this image that conveys that after Hosea had finished a day of preaching, the people to whom he had preached about God see him then, sees him then go into the streets and the alleys and the byways looking for his wife, listening for her cries as she finds herself in the arms of another man. Y'all hear the rawness of this. And then, to add insult to injury, in chapter 3, verse 2, apparently, at one point, Gomer had actually left Hosea and had married or at least entered into some sort of covenant relationship with another man, whatever that might look like, because her lover enslaved her. Wouldn't let her go until... A certain price was paid. We don't know what that is, whether it, was, uh, whether it was some payment that she owed for wine or, or, or clothes or whatever, but he refuses to let Gomer go and enslaves her until payment is made to him who had used and abused Gomer, but then enslaves her. And this brings us to point three as God takes that image of this horrific image of Gomer and Hosea, Gomer now finding herself in bondage to another man, unable to be redeemed, a man that she had used Hosea's possession to lure, and now finds herself in debt to him. And what does Hosea do? He goes to the man who had taken his wife, and he gives that man money so that he can get his wife back. It's getting worse and worse, isn't it? And yet, when God sees that, He lifts that up and He says, you know what? That's how I feel as I look at the adulteress named Israel. For even though she has enslaved herself to the Baals and the Asherahs, even so she has slaved herself, even though the nation has enslaved itself to the idolatry and the brokenness and the rebellion and has found itself up to its neck in ashes, I'm willing to buy her back. I'm willing to do what it takes to liberate her from the, band, from the bondage. I'm willing to pay whatever needs to be paid so she can be free again. Even 
if it's the price of my only begotten Son. And now we begin to see the power of God's love. My third point, God's love never ends. You know, it's important for you and I to recognize that, to know that God's always there. In chapter 5 of verse 12, it's interesting because it's, you, you can see the rawness in God's heart. And he says, I don't know what to do with you, Israel. I don't know how to bring you back to myself. In verse 12 of chapter 5, I'm like a moth to Ephraim. You know, a moth destroys and weakens. Uh, what God is saying here is, is I've tried to, to weaken and, and, and to break you and to show you your need for my strength, and you still ignored me. Verse 14, I'll be like a lion then. I won't try to weaken. I'll just come in and, and I'll rip and I'll tear so that you can see that, that your faithfulness needs to be placed not in, in, in the worthless things of this world, but in the truth. And even in the midst of the weakening of the fabric of the culture of Israel, even in the ripping and the tearing of, of a culture that feeds on itself, does any of this sound familiar? God says, you still won't return to me. And so in verse 15 of chapter 5, I will return again to my place. What God is saying is this, I'll always be here when you're ready to come home. When you're ready to come home, Gomer, the door to my house, Hosea says, will be open to you. You know, I remember... When I was, uh, initially I went to a, a, a private school, excellent education, and I wanted to switch to, to public school. And my father said, why do you want to go to public school? I said, because I want to play football, Dad. And the private school doesn't have a football team. He said, you, you want to you base your whole education on football? And I said, pretty much. <laughs> well, it was a long uh, negotiation. My father was very much against me playing football, he wanted me to continue in the public in the in, in the private school, uh, but but you know the, the public school was uh, great educators, great teachers. We were very fortunate, but frankly, I didn't care about all that. All I cared about is they had a football team. But my dad just wasn't supportive, and I remember that he said, uh, "Son, I'm, I'm I'm not in favor of this. This is wrong. You're 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 putting your trust and effort in the wrong place, son." You're letting this football consume your life. I didn't care. And man, I, I threw myself into it. Man, I was in the weight room. I was practicing. I did everything that needed to happen in order to, to, to be a starter on that football team. Told my dad my first game was coming up, and he just shook his head, didn't say a word. He said, you sure you want to do this? I said, yeah. He said, okay. So the game... We're there, first game of the season, uh, the, the, the first time that I'm going to ever play football. I'm excited, I'm amped up, I'm ready to go. And I look in the stands and I don't see Dad anywhere. And it was hard to know that your dad wasn't going to show up at your first football game. Well, you know, you get into the game, the game starts, you know. I, I played the defensive line. I only went one way. And, and so after... Um, 
after that first uh, series of plays, it was time for the defense to go in, and, and I looked again in the stands and didn't see my dad anywhere. Ran out on the field, lined up, was getting ready to go into my three-point stance. I looked over, and on the far side of the fence, I saw my father. And all of my care and all of my concern went away. I was no longer distracted. And I could put my mind into that game and into that moment and into the work that I was about to do. Every game, my father would be over at that fence. And it would take a while before my dad would get on board and become supportive, at least verbally, because I knew that regardless of what he said, the fact that he was over there at that fence meant that he may not have agreed with what I was doing, but he was going to support his son. He loved his son, and he was always going to have my back. And you know, my brothers and sisters, it will change your life when you recognize that although God doesn't approve of what you're doing or where you are or how you might be living your life, He's at the fence because He loves you and He's always going to have your back. He waits. He heals. He forgives. You know, I probably wasn't honest with you early on in this message because I want to just briefly turn to 1 Corinthians 13. You know, this is the love chapter. And if you read through this love chapter, the Apostle Paul who writes it defines what love is using positive words and negative words. The positive words that he uses, love is patient, love is kind, it, doesn't, it rejoices in truth, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then he uses a bunch of negative words to define love. Love is not envious, it's not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable, is not resentful, and does not rejoice in wrong. And then he summarizes it all with love never ends. And you know what I think is interesting is, is that this chapter, I bet I've read this chapter at 99% of the weddings that I've ever officiated. Because we look at this chapter as if it is the kind of love that a husband has for a wife and a wife has for a husband. Paul intends for this kind of love to be the love that we Christians have for one another, specifically, and we human beings have for one another throughout the world generally. And why? Because it is the perfect definition of God's love. See, if you were listening as I gave you those points, I shared with you, God's love is patient. It never grows cold. God's love is kind. God's love never ends. And He's calling you today. What's your answer? He's coming to redeem you to buy you out of the bondage and slavery that we sold ourselves into. God loves us more than words can even define. Will you say yes to this question? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him as your Lord and Savior? If you've done that, will you click on that button if you're on our online.church platform? If you're joining us on one of our other platforms, Will you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com? 
that we can walk with you and encourage you as you begin your new life. Restored. Restored to a God that loves you. No matter where you've been, no matter what bed you've slept in, God loves you. Amen. Probably at no other time when the church gathers to worship do we see the profoundness of God's love than at this table. Where we remember the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus Christ. This is how much he loved us. The bill had to be paid, as we said last week. The debt had to be paid, as Hosea knew when he went to retrieve Gomer from the bondage of a seducer. And too often we have found ourselves seduced and seducing, looking at the culture for meaning and joy. And when we have found ourselves in chains and in bondage, God still comes and says, I'll redeem and free you. And this table reminds us of that. It's a reminder that you and I have been set free, that we are not in bondage to darkness, that the powers of darkness have no authority whatsoever over us. And why and how? Because of what Jesus Christ did. And so I give to you as it was given to me, that on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after he had given thanks for it, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And like manner, when the supper was ended, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks for it, he gave to them, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant, shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. As oft as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. For these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Receive them and feed on them in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, Pour your Spirit out now upon these gifts that they might be for your people the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation. That in receiving them, we are strengthened and nourished and we celebrate again our redemption, our being set free from the bondage of darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ. And now, would you join with me as we remember the prayer that our Savior taught us when He taught us to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so we remember the great mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. 
Thanks again, folks, for being with us this morning. Just a couple of things to, to share with you, invitations, really. We're going to have an, our next town hall meeting, March 23rd, 7 p.m. need to register online. Go to our homepage. There's a place there just to register. We're going to be talking about how are we going to come out of this COVID stuff, and I look forward to that. Pastor Ike's going to quarterback that, and we'll be sharing some ideas, but also be asking for your input. Also, um, for folks who are grieving, if you've lost a loved one or know somebody who lost a loved one, we do our grief share support and encouragement classes on Tuesday night. They're all online, 645. It's a 13-week class, and we're sort of in week four or five of it, but you can, they, they tell me, the grief share uh, leaders tell me you can jump in anytime and then just pick it up uh, at the end. You need to go to our events page, and right there is, is the grief share uh, sign up. Come be a part of that if you know anybody that's lost a loved one or if you're grieving yourself. Let me share this as a final blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Pray this over you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Good morning. Welcome again to South Suburban Christian Church. Thank you for joining us online. If you're joining us online at uh, our online.church platform, uh, we're very excited that you're here. Hope that you've signed in, getting to know some of the other folks that have uh, signed on as well. If you're listening to us on SoundCloud or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, thank you. If you're watching us on YouTube, I hope that you'll take an opportunity to look at our other videos on this channel. Uh, I just want to send out a, a, just a quick heads up. I'm so grateful for the work that our communications team does and uh, our tech staff. Uh, none of this would be possible without their hours and hours and hours of work. And it's, it's kind of interesting that uh, in just you know, the time it takes uh, me to record a message, I won't say how long that is, um, it, there, there's hours and hours and hours of post-production work that occurs uh, to get it from when I'm actually talking here to the time that you're watching. And we're just grateful for a, the, the team, the volunteers, and everybody who has given so much uh, to make this ministry a possibility. Hey, we're in the midst of this series, uh, Out of the Ashes. And so far we've looked at Adam and Eve, we looked at Aaron, Miriam, and Moses, uh, last week we looked at that David and Bathsheba story, and today we're going to be looking at a story that isn't as well known and is probably a little bit more, well, PG-13, maybe even R-rated uh, in the Bible, the story of Hosea and Gomer. Uh, Hosea is one of the uh, books of prophecy in your Old Testament, uh, so you know, go, go to your Old Testament and keep going toward the end of the Old Testament, and you'll eventually run into Hosea. But hey, you're not in church, you're not in the church building, so no one can see you. Just look at the table of contents and find the book of Hosea. It's a, really, uh, it's, it's a relatively small book, and I would encourage you to take some time to read through it. Uh, you, know, it you know, just that much, about 14 chapters, and uh, I hope that you'll um, read this powerful story about a crazy kind of love that we're going to talk about today. So if you found Hosea, I'm going to begin, I'm just going to read chapter 1. It's not that long, but we're going to be going through some other chapters, but I'll be staying in Hosea today. won't be going back to any other books like we did last week. So uh, beginning in Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Bere, the, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Whew, that's some tough words there, isn't it? By the way, we look, there's not any other translations that help with that word. It is what it is. Picking up at verse 3. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. 
I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. (laughs) And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Today uh, is the fourth Sunday in Lent. Uh, We've already talked about Lent as a season of 40 days uh, that goes from Ash Wednesday up uh, through the resurrection of Jesus, commonly called Easter. You've probably heard me say that phrase a few times. I'll talk about that when we get to that particular Sunday. Lent is a time uh, of preparation. It's a time of prayer. It's a time of repentance. It's a time of discovering Uh, our need for God's grace, that is the gift God gives us us that we do not deserve, and God's mercy, that is is that which God does not give us that we do deserve. During the five weeks uh, in this time leading up to Palm Sunday, um, which is the Sunday that we remember Christ entering into Jerusalem uh, on the uh, back of a colt, Uh, we talked a little bit about that last week, Um, We're going to be looking at five instances in Scripture of folks who found themselves up to their neck in ashes. Uh, What led to that, and how we see God, and ultimately what God has done, how God responds, uh, and which I think is most important, uh, as we have seen God's grace and love and mercy through Jesus Christ, have known that through Jesus Christ. I want to share with you three important truths about God's love this morning. There's a lot more than three, but I want to share three of them with you today. First of all, point one, God's love is patient. It never grows cold. (laughs) I remember when I had just uh, uh, begun to serve a small church uh, in a very rural part of Kentucky while I was in seminary as a licensed pastor before I was ordained. I had a couple that came to, uh, to, to the church. And they wanted to get married. And this was uh, the very first wedding that I would have ever done. And unfortunately, it turned out to be the wedding that would never occur. Uh, I'll never forget as they walked into uh, the, the, the little office that was there in that, that very old church building, uh, built in 1828. Uh, they sat down and they were so much in love and so excited and, and just so filled with joy and, and and excitement about what was going to uh, happen and, and what they were about to do. And so we began to talk ab- about marriage. You know, you go through those uh, uh, sessions uh, of preparing for marriage, which I always thought was kind of funny. I, I, of course, I was single then, didn't know anything about marriage, and here I am counseling this young couple about to get married. And they had, uh, in, the, in, the, in the process of that, they had said that they would like to uh, write their own vows. Now, I know that a lot of people do that. Uh, Some of our uh, professors at seminary um, weren't really big on the idea of people writing vows. The wedding vows that we have uh, date back 
over 1,500 years. Those vows that are said even today uh, have been relatively unchanged for 1,500 years. And, and some of those uh, old preachers teaching at seminary said, hey, there's a reason that words like that are able to stand the test of time. But this was the first wedding, and I was excited, and I didn't want to do anything to jeopardize this because this was my very first wedding. And so I said, well, that's fine. You can write your own vows. I said, we'll, we'll, we'll sit down, we'll, we'll look them over. And, uh, and so we, uh, we did that. And, and you know, the, the, most of the things that they said were not that different. They were said differently, but they were not that different than you would find in a traditional vow until at the very end, the guy said this phrase, and this I vow until my love grows cold. And when he said that, the, his fiancée, she looked at him and she looked at me and she had such love and she said, isn't that so romantic, so, so wonderful? What a metaphor for, for the love and the life that we're about to embark on. Well, <laughs> I was a little bit more skeptical. I said, can you tell me a little bit about what do you mean when you say our love grows cold? At which point she interrupted and said, well, of course, Pastor, until our love grows cold through the coldness of death. And he looked at her with the most perplexed look in the world, and he said, no, no it doesn't. It, it means until I don't love you anymore. I mean, how can I promise that I'll always love you? And I don't want to make a promise that I can't keep. Well, the tone and the atmosphere in the office changed rather quickly and rather suddenly. And they begin to go back and forth, and here I am. I, I don't really know how to handle this kind of conflict yet. And so I said to them, I said, well, well let's stop arguing. Why don't you guys go home, talk about this, and let's meet next week, and uh, we'll continue our planning. Well, as you might imagine, I never heard or saw from that couple ever again. You know, I guess that for a lot of us, we want to be able to make promises that we know that we can keep. We want to be able to think about, um, and yet at the same time, we want to be able to think about that in those important relationships, like marriage, the vows that we're making, the commitments that we're making, are for a lifetime. And yes, 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 we've heard all of those of you who have been seasoned married couples, uh, 30, 40, 50, even 60 years of marriage, and you've said, look, it's not always fun and games, it's not always a bed of roses. And I have to say that if I were looking at lifting up a couple that would be the most wonderful example of marital bliss and joy, Hosea and Gomer would not be the couple that I lift up. And yet at the same time, if I were lifting up a couple that talks about the rawness and the reality of what it means to be committed to one another or committed to relationship, Hosea and Gomer are the perfect couple. Let me quickly just outline the story of Hosea for you, and I hope that you'll go and you'll read the entire book. Uh, you can probably do it in one sitting. Hosea is a prophet of God. He serves the northern kingdom of uh, Israel, and his home base, if you will, is Samaria. You might say that he's just a good country pastor in a small town in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's faithful. He loves his people. He is faithful to God's word. He speaks the truth. He extends God's grace and forgiveness. And yet, at the same time, he is surrounded by rebellion. The people of Israel are refusing to stay true and loyal to the one true God. 
This is after the nation has split. The temple is down in Jerusalem in the southern nation of Judah. And the kings of Israel don't want their people to go to Judah, for they might, they, they might defect to that southern kingdom. They might not remain loyal to the northern kingdom of Israel. So the kings establish places of worship on the high places or on these mountaintops. And they tell the people, you don't need to go to the temple anymore. You, you go to this, you stay right here in Israel, and this is where you can worship. It's not what the Mosaic law had outlined. And, and on top of that, as other nations have come in and as other nations have stayed and as the people of Israel had remembered the religions of their past and they said, hey, if we can't go to the temple, if we can't go to Jerusalem, if we can't participate in that kind of festivity, then we'll just go back to the old pagan ways that we remembered when we were here in Israel during the Exodus, when we were uh, conquering these people and in some ways assimilating, seeking to assimilate them into the faith of the God of Israel, but in too many cases, they assimilated into the pagan faiths. And so they began to worship other gods. And the principal god that they worshiped was a god named Baal and his female uh, uh, counterpart, Asherah. And Baal, the, the, the pagan god Baal, becomes uh, this, this significant rival, if you will, of the one true god, the god of Isaac and uh, Jacob and Joseph, Abraham. Well, when God calls Hosea to, to pr be a prophet, to be a pastor, if you will, in the midst of this very idolatrous uh, community, it was hard work. And it, most of Hosea's preaching was not calling the people back to true worship. And so God says to Hosea, I want you to marry this woman, and her name is Gomer. And uh, Gomer is, uh, and, and the word there, as it was translated, a woman of whoredom. What it means is it's a woman whose, whose own understanding of marriage is not as God had uh, established. It, it, she is a woman who God knows uh, will forget the vows that she's going to make to her husband. And so Gomer and Hosea get married. And, and like so many relationships, the marriage starts out okay, I suppose. I mean, uh, they have a child together, and uh, it's a little boy. And God says, I want you to name this child Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is a name that may not mean much to me and to you, but to the original readers of this book, the, the original hearers of the prophet Hosea, they would have completely understood what that meant. You might remember the stories of King uh, Ahab and uh, Jezebel. Everybody knows the name Jezebel. She comes from the Bible. Uh, how they, uh, Hosea, or I'm sorry, Ahab wanted a, a vineyard that was owned uh, by a god named Naboth, and it was in the valley of Jezreel. But the vineyard wouldn't be sold to him, and so Jezebel figures out a way to have the owner of the vineyard put to death, and Ahab claims uh, this valley and this vineyard for himself. God sends the prophet Elijah. Uh, to Ahab and says, you know, you have done this horrible thing and I will demand your life in the very valley that you have taken by murder. Not only are Ahab and Jezebel associated with that horrific murder in order to gain wealth and gain land and gain power, uh, but there's also that great story of when Jezebel tries to have all of the prophets of God put to death and Elijah calls together a battle between uh, the one true God of the universe and the, God, the pagan non-existent God Baal. 
on Mount Carmel when they, they build the altars and, and Elijah says, here's how we'll prove which is the true God. Whichever God sends down fire to consume the offering on the altar uh, will be the one true God. Uh, you can go back and you can read more about that in uh, uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. So, so what, what we're seeing here in just this name is that word Jezreel would have brought back all of those memories. It would have brought back all the memories of, of Ahab and Jezebel. It would have reminded the readers of the murder that Ahab and Jezebel had done in order to acquire this vineyard. It would have reminded them of their persecution of the prophets of God. It would have reminded them of Jezebel and uh, Baal's, I'm sorry, uh, Ahab's insistent that the people worship Baal and Asherah rather than Yahweh Jehovah, the one true God. It, it, it's a name that would have brought to their minds judgment. It would have been a name that would have reminded them that God's judgment is sure, that people reap what they sow. Well, after Jezreel, Gomer begins to step out, if you will, on Hosea. She goes and she finds other lovers. And she conceives and has a child, and uh, God says to Hosea, name this child, no mercy, for I will have no mercy on the people. Now, now, now this isn't, when, when, when we say God doesn't give mercy, we're not saying that God punishes. Uh, what no mercy literally means is, is that God simply allows the results of our rebellion to be felt by those of us who rebelled. Like we have said, and I have said to you multiple times, mercy is, uh, mercy is that God doesn't give us what we do deserve. So when we don't receive mercy, it is as God is allowing the normal, natural results of our rebellion to be felt by us. It's a way of our having to pay the piper, if you will, or to pay the bill, as we talked about last week. So what God is saying is, is, if these are the things that you want to do, this is how you want to live your life, this is how you want to treat one another, then I will simply allow the results of your behavior to play out and you'll experience your own payment for your own behavior. He then, uh, uh, she, she then steps out again. By the way, no mercy was a daughter. She then steps out again, and, and this time um, uh, they have a son. She has a son. Again, Hosea is not the father. And they call this child's name not my people. That is that the people just simply aren't interested in being the people of God anymore. That the people have no interest in benefiting from the great covenant promises that God had given them. The people didn't want to be tied to the morals and the mores and, and the, the appropriate ways of conduct, the, the way that we should live in deference to one another and in submission to God so that we might uh, uh, realize true joy. And yet, in the midst of all of this, as you looked at those last verses, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1, there's this war that seems to be going on within God, that even though He knows the people don't want anything to do with Him, that the people of Israel just are completely 
uninterested in God. Now I'm pausing here in these minutes. Because does any of this sound familiar? Do we not find ourselves in a culture that is just simply completely uninterested in the God that loves them? And the God that wants to heal them? Do we find ourselves, like those early citizens of Israel, overwhelmed by the religions and the, the, the issues of importance that come upon us by the culture, and we find ourselves distracted and pursuing these false and pagan gods, not necessarily statues made of gold or wood, but, but areas that are supposed to give us meaning that don't even exist and aren't real. And you see this, this love story, if you will, the, the, the story between Hosea and Gomer of this wife who has twice now stepped out on her husband and has conceived and born children that are not his and, are, and is expecting him to take care of while she goes and pursues other lovers as well. is an example of how God feels and what God experiences as He looks down on His creation. And yet... Point two, God's love is kind. You know, in chapter 2, verse 8, if you keep reading, uh, Hosea is, is uh, reflecting uh, as God talks about and compares the emotions and the instances that Hosea has to deal with to how God is engaging with His people. Apparently, what Gomer's been doing is just, you know, she, she, she's home with Hosea, she she goes and buys some clothes using Hosea's money. She, she buys grain and wine and oil. She puts on herself jewelry of gold and, and silver. And then she goes out. While Hosea is out preaching, she goes out and looks for a man that might be interested in her. She's using all the things that Hosea had given her. She's using all of the resources Hosea had provided so that she could go find a fellow. And God says, this is how I feel. Because it's I who give you the corn and the wine and the oil, and you offer it to a pagan idol. It's I who have given you the silver and the gold, and you take it and you make this idol, and you tell this silver and gold that I've given you that it is what has given you the blessings of life. You take the stuff that I give you, and you use it to worship the other gods that will never be faithful to you. And yet even as Gomer uses the provisions and the possessions of Hosea to lure to herself other lovers, there's this image that conveys that after Hosea had finished a day of preaching, the people to whom he had preached about God see him then, sees him then go into the streets and the alleys and the byways looking for his wife listing for her cries as she finds herself in the arms of another man. Y'all hear the rawness of this. And then, to add insult to injury, in chapter 3, verse 2, apparently, at one point, Gomer had actually left Hosea and had married or at least entered into some sort of covenant relationship with another man, whatever that might look like. 
because her lover enslaved her. Wouldn't let her go until a certain price was paid. We don't know what that is, whether it was, uh, whether it was some payment that she owed for wine or, or, or clothes or whatever, but he refuses to let Gomer go and enslaves her until payment is made to him who had used and abused Gomer, but then enslaves her. And this brings us to point three as God takes that image of this horrific image of Gomer and Hosea. Gomer now finding herself in bondage to another man, unable to be redeemed. A man that she had used Hosea's possession to lure and now finds herself in debt to him. And what does Hosea do? He goes to the man who had taken his wife and he gives that man money so that he can get his wife back. It's getting worse and worse, isn't it? And yet, when God sees that, He lifts that up and He says, you know what? That's how I feel as I look at the adulteress named Israel. For even though she has enslaved herself to the Baals and the Asherahs, even so she has slaved herself, even though the nation has enslaved itself to the idolatry and the brokenness and the rebellion and has found itself up to its neck in ashes, I'm willing to buy her back. I'm willing to do what it takes to liberate her from the, band, from the bondage. I'm willing to pay whatever needs to be paid so she can be free again. Even if it's the price of my only begotten son. And now we begin to see power of God's love my third point God's love never ends you know it's important for you and I to recognize that to know that God's always there in chapter 5 of verse 12 it's interesting because it's you you can see the rawness in God's heart and he says I don't know what to do with you Israel I don't know how to bring you back to myself in verse 12 of chapter 5, I'm like a moth to Ephraim. You know, a moth destroys and weakens. Uh, what God is saying here is, is I've tried to, to weaken and, and, and to break you and to show you your need for my strength, and you still ignored me. In verse 14, I'll be like a lion then. I, I won't try to weaken. I'll just come in and, and I'll rip and I'll tear so that you can see that, that your faithfulness needs to be placed not in in the worthless things of this world, but in the truth. And even in the midst of the weakening of the fabric of the culture of Israel, even in the ripping and the tearing of, of a culture that feeds on itself, does any of this sound familiar? God says, you still won't return to me. And so in verse 15 of chapter 5, I will return again to my place. What God is saying is this, I'll always be here when you're ready to come home. When you're ready to come home, Gomer, the door to my house, Hosea says, will be open to you. You know, I remember when I was, uh, initially I went to a, a, a private school, excellent education, 
And I wanted to switch to, to public school. And my father said, why do you want to go to public school? I said, because I want to play football, Dad. And the private school doesn't have a football team. He said, you, you want to you base your whole education on football? And I said, pretty much. Well, it was a long uh, negotiation. My father was very much against me playing football. He wanted me to continue in the, public, in the, in, in the private school. Uh, but, but, you know, the, the public school was uh, great educators, great teachers. We were very fortunate. But frankly, I didn't care about all that. All I cared about is they had a football team. But my dad just wasn't supportive. And I remember that he said, uh, son, I'm, I'm, I'm not in favor of this. This is wrong. You're, 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 you're putting your trust and effort in the wrong place, son. You're letting this football consume your life. I didn't care. And man, I, I threw myself into it. Man, I was in the weight room. I was practicing. I did everything that needed to happen in order to, to, to be a starter on that football team. Told my dad my first game was coming up, and he just shook his head, didn't say a word. He said, you sure you want to do this? I said, yeah. He said, okay. So the game, we're there, first game of the season, uh, the, the, the first time that I'm going to ever play football, I'm excited, I'm amped up, I'm ready to go. And I look in the stands and I don't see Dad anywhere. And it was hard to know that your dad wasn't going to show up at your first football game. Well, you know, you get into the game, the game starts, you know. I, I played the defensive line. I only went one way. And, and so after... Um, after that first uh, series of plays, it was time for the defense to go in, and, and I looked again in the stands and didn't see my dad anywhere. Ran out on the field, lined up, was getting ready to go into my three-point stance. I looked over, and on the far side of the fence, I saw my father. And all of my care and all of my concern went away. I was no longer distracted, and I could put my mind into that game and into that moment and into the work that I was about to do. Every game, my father would be over at that fence. And it would take a while before my dad would get on board and become supportive, at least verbally, because I knew that regardless of what he said, the fact that he was over there at that fence meant that he may not have agreed with what I was doing, but he was going to support his son. He loved his son. And he was always going to have my back. And you know, my brothers and sisters, it will change your life when you recognize that although God doesn't approve of what you're doing or where you are or how you might be living your life, he's at the fence because he loves you. And he's always going to have your back. He waits he heals. He forgives. You know, I probably wasn't honest with you early on in this message because I want to just briefly turn to 1 Corinthians 13. You know, this is the love chapter. And if you read through this love chapter, the Apostle Paul who writes it defines what love is using positive words and negative words positive words that he uses love is patient love is kind it doesn't it rejoices in truth it bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things 
And then he uses a bunch of negative words to define love. Love is not envious, it's not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, does not insist on its own way, is not irritable, is not resentful, and does not rejoice in wrong. And then he summarizes it all with, love never ends. And you know what I think is interesting is is that this chapter, I bet I've read this chapter at 99% of the weddings that I've ever officiated. Because we look at this chapter as if it is the kind of love that a husband has for a wife and a wife has for a husband. Paul intends for this kind of love to be the love that we Christians have for one another, specifically, and we human beings have for one another throughout the world generally. And why? Because it is the perfect definition of God's love. See, if you were listening as I gave you those points, I shared with you, God's love is patient. It never grows cold. God's love is kind. God's love never ends. And He's calling you today. What's your answer? He's coming to redeem you to buy you out of the bondage and slavery that we sold ourselves into. God loves us more than words can even define. Will will you say yes to this question? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him as your Lord and Savior? If you've done that, will you click on that button if you're on our online.church platform? If you're joining us on one of our other platforms, Will you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com that we can walk with you and encourage you as you begin your new life restored. Restored to a God that loves you no matter where you've been, no matter what bed you've slept in. God loves you. Amen.